why we can rejoice, why we sing, O come, let us adore him. And so this morning, we're going to look at Matthew's account. In Matthew chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 18. And this, in Matthew's account, he really highlights Joseph's experience of how this begins to develop. So this is what it says. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home to be his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, your son, God with us, for the gift that he is. And we pray that this morning we would have eyes to see him once again and rejoice at his coming. And I also pray that it would fill us with hope for his return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, our big idea is that Christmas announces that our hope is in Jesus. He is God with us. Christmas declares that God has come and he will come again. And because of that, we can have hope. We can have hope. Now, what is hope? Well, the Bible gives us, I think, a really interesting definition and understanding of hope. In Greek, which the New Testament is written in Greek, there is this word elpis, which means expectation. Worry is this anticipation of a potential suffering or danger or misfortune. But hope is different. It's this expectation of a future good. In the Old Testament, which is written predominantly in Hebrew, there's two words used for hope, yakal and kava. Both mean waiting or waiting for. One of the places where you can see this is in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Some of you will know it. It says, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not get weary. They will walk and not be faint. But if you have a different translation, that translation is the NIV. If you have the ESV, it'll say those who wait on the Lord. One of the images that we have for this, uh, this idea of hope is standing on your tippy toes and watching on the horizon afar to see if that person you're waiting for will arrive. There's that tension there. And kava. It's related to the word kav, which means cord. And so when you pull on the kav, you create this tension, a state of tension until there's release. 
Kabbalah is this feeling of tension and expectation while you wait for something to happen. Hope is that expectation and the sense of tension as you wait for future good. And that tension can be tiring, can't it? One thing that I appreciate about Christmas and in a previous life, or my wife would want me to clarify and say, not a previous life, but a pre-kid life, I got into Lord of the Rings around Christmas time. You have more time to read, you know, you could watch uh, the films. The films usually came out and were released at around Christmas time, just like they do with Star Wars. It's strategic. They know people are going to be available, right? But there's this one scene in the film, it's not in the books, in the second film, The Two Towers, at the end of it, that I love. Some of you might know it. It's Sam's speech in Osgiliath to Frodo. There's some slides that you're going to see behind me that capture this. Frodo is absolutely discouraged. And he actually uh, was ready to surrender his ring. I'm not spoiling anything, okay? It's like 20 years old, so you can't, you can't come at me for that. Okay? He's ready to surrender the ring to the Nazgul, to these forces of evil. And Sam stops him. And as Sam tackles him to stop him, he actually pulls out his blade, Frodo does, and is ready to stab Sam. And then he comes to and realizes what he's doing. And he falls down and slouches against this wall and says, I can't do this, Sam. I can't do this. And Sam responds and says, I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? In the end, it is only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Sam carried on saying, those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. And Frodo turned to him and said, what are we holding on to? He barely got it out. And Sam said, that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. Frodo and Sam are this case study in the difference between hope and despair. Sam has hope. He is living in the tension of waiting. He believes there is something good and it's worth fighting for. Frodo despairs. So despairs this total loss of hope and absence of tension. He can't see it. What are we holding on to? He can't see what Sam sees. Sam sees and knows there's good in the world, worth fighting for. You can't see the good. The world, Middle Earth, is being destroyed. Everyone is in war. And yet, he knows it's there. And Frodo desperately needed to be reminded of what he was holding on to, what he was putting his hope in. He'd lost sight of it. 
The burden of the ring had overshadowed everything. It weighed on his neck. He wanted to give up. He had no fight in him left. He was exhausted, and everything feels like it's going wrong, and nothing is going right. And so he says, I can't do this. See, hope needs an object. It could be something or somebody, a person some, or someone. The object of Israel's hope in the story of the Bible was the Christ. The Christ was God's anointed and chosen ruler who would bring God's good and righteous rule on earth like it is in heaven. He would bring healing to God's broken world. And the world was broken because of sin. And Israel, even though they were no longer slaves or exiles in Babylon and had returned to the land that had once been promised to them, they didn't feel like they were free because now they just had new occupiers, new rulers, the Romans. Babylon, they had the Babylonians. Here they had the Romans. They didn't really feel like they were free. And many expected that the Christ would come and defeat the Romans with violence. Now all of us have hopes. Maybe that's not our hope. But for some of us, it can be as simple as Christmas being devoid of arguments with family members, having no anxiety about our expenses. It might be hopes about getting a job or that job you've really wanted for so long, getting that promotion. It may be getting married or having kids or your kids finally having kids because you just want to be grandparents. Whatever it may be, we all have hopes. Some of us have hopes about having enough money to retire in a few years when the market feels like it's ruined your investments. Our problem is that we set our hope in the wrong things. And it's not to say that any of these things I've mentioned are bad in and of themselves. It's just that we've set our hope, our expectation for future good solely in them. And so when we don't get them, we're disappointed. Or worse, we despair. When our hopes are dashed, when things go wrong, one of the scripts we get tempted to believe and say to ourselves is what Frodo says in Osgiliath. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't keep going in this marriage. I can't keep going in this job. I can't keep fighting for this relationship, for this friendship. I can't forgive them. I can't do it. I can't keep going. And that's actually what Joseph says to himself. I can't do this. For two reasons, I think. First, Mary's pregnancy was a real problem. Mary and Joseph lived in this deeply conservative world, a patriarchal world that was steeped in honor-shame dynamics. Everybody in your community knew you. So they would have assumed something happened between Mary and Joseph. They were betrothed, and technically it meant that they had already committed to one another, but they weren't to have consummated their marriage yet. So there's this tension. And then the Old Testament law made adultery a crime punishable by death. Yet in the times of Jesus, the Romans had stripped Jews of their power to execute. So that threat of death wasn't really serious, but the experience of gossip, of shame, of judgment by your community was very real and lasting. And this is what Joseph is aware of in navigating. He's this Torah-following Jew. He wants to be rightly related to God, and he believes Mary has been unfaithful. The law requires him to divorce her. But knowing the shame and potential th threat that Mary would experience, he decides to do it discreetly. 
I can't go through with this and be faithful to God, is his tension. But secondly, Joseph loved Mary. And he was completely confused and hurt by her pregnancy. Prior to the angel's words, there was this absence of hope that he had in this relationship with Mary. He was ready to give up on this relationship. He couldn't understand what had happened. Mary was pregnant and it wasn't him. I can't go through with Mary. Mary and Mary. She's broken my trust. And yet all of this changes the moment that the angel of God reveals that this whole strange circumstance that Joseph is going through is actually the work of the Spirit of God. And this would enable Joseph to give himself to Mary fully. He would commit himself to her through this. The angel says, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Mary will give birth to a son, you'll name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This is Matthew's way of gently pointing to Jesus' divine nature. There's only one who forgives sins. And it's not human. It's God. But if he is subtle here, he gets explicit the next sentence after. Because Matthew adds this little line, all of this was to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said. They will call him Emmanuel, God with us. Frodo asked this question, what are we holding on to, Sam? Christmas actually declares to us what we are holding on to, that God has become one of us, to be with us. Emmanuel tells us who Jesus is. This is Matthew's equivalent to John in his gospel saying, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Emmanuel, Matthew is saying, this is the moment, this is it, this is the moment that all of creation yearned and hoped for, longed for, waited in tension for. Something remarkable has taken place this first Christmas. God entered the world. The Creator became a creature. The King came and served. Jesus is God with flesh on. Jesus is God with us, among us. He is the Messiah. He is the King who has come to dwell with his people. He has come to inaugurate the kingdom of God, and he is here. Christmas declares to us, I have come to be with you. And it's this astounding idea that God's people has been wrestling with trying to articulate its significance and mystery for the last 2,000 years. In the fourth century, St. Ephraim the Syriac wrote, the word entered her and became silent within her. Thunder entered her and his voice was still. The shepherd of all entered her and he became a lamb in her. Charles Wesley, we just sang this. Come all ye faithful. He writes in the 1700s, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with us to dwell. No, that's not right. Please as man with man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. And even in the Chronicles of Narnia, if you're a C.S. Lewis fan, Lucy tells Diggory, she says, in our world too, a stable 
once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. All of them are trying to express this wonder of Christmas, of the significance of what has happened. And it feels like words are not enough to convey what has happened. But when God looked at the world and all of its brokenness, all of the sin, all of the evil and death, his response was not a new thing. It wasn't a new political movement or system, a new religious institution. It wasn't a new government. It wasn't a new philosophy. It wasn't a new ministry. The only thing that could rescue us from the destructive damage of sin and slavery to Satan and our flesh and that could restore our broken world wasn't a thing. It was a person. It was God himself in Jesus. Apart from him, there is no hope. There is no salvation. There's no freedom from sin. There's no access to God. We have no relationship with him. There is no hope for a new heaven, new earth. Without Jesus, death is not defeated. We are not free from it. There is no hope, no anticipation of future good, no enjoyment of the present good. But that's the thing that Christmas declares, is that Jesus has come to be with us, that he has given us himself. See, hope has a name, and the object of our hope is Jesus. The object of our hope is Jesus. And so because of this, I think a a more specific definition for hope is hope is this confident expectation of coming good based on the person and promises of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. Hope animates us. Hope is not a passive thing. It's not apathetic. It's not weak. Hope is resilient. Think of Sam and Frodo. Sam is hoping, and he's not just passive. They're still resisting. They're resilient. They're still going. They're not just waiting and standing, twiddling their thumbs. And hope is not naive. It's not naive to the reality of suffering in our world. Our hope isn't that nothing bad ever happens to us in life and that things will just get better and better and better. We expect suffering if we are followers of Jesus. Jesus himself tells us in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. That's not the kind of verse people love to memorize and you know, tuck in their heart and pull out when they face trials. That's not what we like. We like the positive ones. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. Not in this life you will have trouble. It's not the kind that you put up on a wall when you enter your home and nothing like that. But then Jesus will say, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And the world here refers to all that exists opposed to God's purposes and plans, both in the seen and the unseen, both in the physical and the spiritual. See, the object of our hope is Jesus, God incarnate, God with skin on. The source of our hope is the God who's come to us and overcomes the world for us. And the way he overcame the world was by living the life that we were meant to live and dying in our place and then rising victoriously over death. Well, so what? I want to just offer us four 
reasons that Christmas fills us with hope in the present and for the future. Reason number one is God in Jesus gets us. He identifies with us. Jesus knows the human experience. Because God has become one of us, he knows that experience. He knows what it is like to hurt, to feel pain, to weep, to experience anxious thoughts, to be rejected. He knows what it is like to be wounded. But he also knows what it is like to heal, to rejoice, to laugh with others. He knows what it is like to experience growing and learning something. He learned to walk like all of us do. What goes beyond us is that Jesus not only understands us, that he not only gets us, that Jesus lived the life that we could not live. He was perfectly sinless and willingly laid down his life for us. The lie that you and I will be tempted to believe throughout life in our pain and in our loneliness is that God doesn't care and he doesn't understand. He doesn't care and he doesn't understand. And when we believe that lie, we will make really poor decisions. We're tempted to believe the lie that because I'm single or divorced or my marriage is broken, God doesn't care. He doesn't understand what I'm going through. Yet Jesus was born into poverty. He was never rich. He was single his whole life. He experienced loneliness. He was betrayed by his closest disciples. We're tempted to believe the lie that he couldn't understand my pain and loss. And yet some scholars believe that Joseph probably died by the time Jesus began his ministry, which is why he never gets mentioned in the gospel accounts after his first pages. Jesus was nailed to a cross, whipped 40 times. He struggled to breathe on the cross. He knows pain. We're tempted to believe the lie that he doesn't relate to our shame and embarrassment. When he was crucified, most likely naked, in a culture, an honor-shame culture, where this would have been seen as one of the most shameful things you could do. He was mocked by strangers and the religious leaders alike. We might say he doesn't understand my failures, though. But he does. Despite never sinning himself, Jesus willingly took on the shame of all of your failures and the worst of their consequences upon himself. He felt your failure more than you ever have. Christmas flies in the face of that lie that he doesn't understand us, that he doesn't care. Instead, Christmas celebrates the great comfort that God empathizes with our pain and suffering, that he identifies with us, suffers with us, for us, and dies for us. He's eternally willing to come to you, to forgive you, to help you, to pray for you, to comfort you, encourage you, to teach you, sustain you. He's come to identify with you, to be with you. Secondly, the reason we can have hope is because God in Jesus gives great dignity to the human body. No other creature gets this honor that we are given. God did not become an orca. God did not become an elephant. God did not become an angel. God chose to take on human flesh and bones. He saw fit to become human. Now, some of us don't love our bodies. Some of us see our bodies as impediments to experiencing life to the full. The author of life saw fit to be embodied. The incarnation shows us that God simply doesn't disregard our bodies as if they don't matter. 
He dignifies our bodily experience. Christmas declares that the human body is worthy of dignity and respect. Your body matters. God gives it that great dignity. Connected to that, we can have hope because God will put the life of Jesus in us. See, the angel tells Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. What God does in Mary is a one-time thing. That will never happen again. And yet at Christmas, we celebrate that what God tells Joseph is a picture of what God intends to do with humanity. That the same life-giving spirit that conceived Jesus and Mary is available to anybody who puts their trust in Jesus. God isn't content to dwell in a building. He's not even content to dwell in heaven apart from humanity. He has come to bring heaven on earth and make humanity his dwelling place. It's not enough to just know about him, to hear the story. He wants you to encounter the one that the story is about. He wants you to experience him dwelling in you. He wants you to experience that life to the full. Fourth and finally, the reason we can have hope is that God in Jesus has attached himself to us forever. Because God became human in Jesus, we have this immense confidence in the future that the best really is yet to come. God has tethered himself to us forever. And that future, we are told in Revelation 21, is a future with no tears, no death, no pain and mourning. It's what the Jesus Storybook Bible says, Jesus will make everything sad come untrue. Or as a friend and mentor of mine, Daryl Johnson puts it, God has tied his future up with our future. The future of humanity is is as secure as the future of God. The enfleshed God is the guarantee that one day all flesh will be fully redeemed. See, Jesus tells us, because I live, you also will live. We have this present hope, but a a hope that also anticipates that the best is yet to come because he has tethered himself to us. So what are you hoping in? What are you holding on to? Maybe you've looked around at the world or your life and thought there isn't much to hold on to. And I want you to hear this morning that there is, that it is Jesus, the one born for you. You may have stopped hoping in him. You may have stopped waiting in anticipation for his goodness, his presence. But the amazing good news here is not that you or I have been faithful in our waiting. It's not that at all. It's actually that God has refused to let go of us. Christmas declares that God is faithful to coming to us. What are we holding on to? It is that Jesus held on to us that he so loved us he became one of us. It's that God would rather become one of us and suffer like us and die for us than be apart from us. It's this total commitment to us. And so that must be our response to him. A total commitment to him. A total giving over of ourselves to Jesus. He didn't just come so that you could sing songs about him. He came so that you could be united to him forever. So, Father in heaven, we thank you for 
Jesus. And the hope that is on offer to us. And Lord, we do confess that there are other things we put our hope in beyond you. And they haven't satisfied or delivered. And yet in this moment, we want to turn to you. We thank you that even when we've been unfaithful, you are faithful. Even when we stopped letting go, you didn't let go. Even when we stopped holding on, you held on. And we thank you that in this season, we are reminded of your great faithfulness, your great love, your great generosity to us. And we ask that you would help us to walk with this abiding hope. And we thank you that you make that possible because you say that anyone who puts their trust in you will have your spirit dwelling in them. Wherever we go, your hope will be with us, Lord. And so we pray that you'd lead us this week in that way. And in this month, that we would rejoice in your coming. Draw us into this story once again, we pray. Amen.